0: Good evening, church family. Oh, it's good to be up here in God's country. I keep looking at the pages of what's happening back home and I'm so glad I'm here. (laughs) I know, I know, I gotta go back there. You all don't have to. I have to. But I'm thankful to be where God places me. Aren't you glad for that too? To be where God places you. We're opening a time capsule. It's probably the first book written in the New Testament, the book of First Thessalonians. And it's a glimpse of a first century church. And as we've already noticed, these folks are Adventists. Five chapters in First Thessalonians, every chapter ends in the coming of Jesus. Regardless of what you talk about, Paul always comes to the coming of Jesus. That's who Adventists are, isn't that right? Regardless of what happens in your life, you look at life through those lenses of the coming of Jesus. And these folks are truly Adventist. We opened the time capsule on Monday night and I, we put something on the imaginary object on the table. What was it? A pair of boots. Because he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that he wrote this to the saints in Thessalonica who are in Christ. And we saw... That every Christian life and every church, there's a well-worn path between the mountain and the multitude, right? At the university where I teach, we were in the process of, uh, of doing Steps to Christ. The faculty, we're, we're getting ready for the school year. Let me read something to you. I sent this out this morning and all the staff got this. Listen, this is Steps to Christ, page 101. God does not mean that any of us should become hermits or monks and retire from the world in order to devote ourselves to acts of worship. Listen to this. The life must be lived like the Christ's life between the mountain and the multitude. You said, Pastor, I thought you thunk that up. Yeah, I didn't. It came from her. Between the mountain and the multitude. Listen. He who does nothing but pray will soon cease to pray. Or his prayers will become a a formal ritual. When men take themselves out of social life, away from the sphere of Christian duty and cross-bearing. When they cease to work earnestly for the master who worked earnestly for them. Listen, they lose the subject matter of prayer and have no incentive for devotion. You listening? Their prayers become personal and selfish. They cannot pray in regard to the wants of humanity or the uplifting of Christ's kingdom, pleading for strength wherewith to work. Did you hear what she said? Steps to Christ, page 101. We need to be walking that path every day between the mountain and the multitude. That's that that first boot we put out there. I told you it would be easier if I just chose the topic each night to speak on. And you can do that when you just do topical sermons, and there's a place for that. But when you open the Bible and decide to preach through a book, you don't get to choose the topics. You turn the page and you have to, you have to play the ball as it lies, right? And so the second night we opened this time capsule, we placed something else on that table. Remember what we placed there last night? Yeah, a family album. Believe it or not, among these Adventist Christians, there had risen criticism and bitterness and anger. You saw that, didn't you? I mean, I'm, I'm amazed when you think of this first century church. Paul, aren't there other things you shouldn't be writing about? But his heart and his passion is for that church in Thessalonica and what's going on there. And you remember his response? You know, brothers, you know how we dealt with you like a, a nursing mother. Remember that? You know how we dealt with you like a, an instructing father, and you know how we were orphaned from you. You hear that family language. You see, Adventists are people who believe that the family of God is important and we need each other. We said it before. We'll say it again. There are no saints in the Bible. No singular saint. It doesn't exist. Only in the plural. We can only become the children of God in the family of God. And that's why we need each other. Sainthood is not something somebody bestows upon you when you die. Saints describe the living relationship within the body of Christ while we're alive. Paul's very clear about that. That's family album. Tonight... I'm going to put something else out on that table. We've had a boot and a book. Tonight I'm going to put a bandage. A number of years ago, Paul Harvey says that uh, the following was the most requested piece of literature that he has ever broadcast on his program. And people call in and ask for it. It was a prayer. A prayer that was written by, that was uh, said by a pastor, Pastor Joe Wright of the Central Christian Church in Wichita, Kansas. They had asked him to have the prayer for the opening of the Kansas Senate. Everyone expected a very devout, religious sounding prayer. Here's what they got. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe on those who call evil good. But that's exactly what we've done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it alternate lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn and called it choice. We have neglected to discipline our children and we call it building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it political savvy. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and we call it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and we call it enlightenment. Search us, O God. Know our hearts today. Try us and see if there be some wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who've been sent here by the people of the state of Kansas and who've been ordained by you to govern this great state. Grant them your wisdom to rule and may their decisions direct us to the center of your will. I ask in the name of your Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. People got up and walked out. Of the Senate. Highly. Offended. Paul Harvey said it was. The most requested. He he read this. Prayer. Over the radio. Most requested document. He had ever had. uh, A request for to come. It was a shock. In our culture. For someone to lay things out on the table. And talk about life the way it truly is. Especially. In a religious context, it must have seemed foolish to some, meddling to others, blasphemy. I want to suggest to you tonight that the passage we're going to look at must have sounded just as foolish in Paul's day. It must have shocked them deeply. First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading from the NIV. I know some of you are reading from the King James and New King James and several other translations, but we'll get along, won't we? We can do this together. Okay. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says this. Finally, brothers, we instruct you in how to live in order to please God. As, in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do this more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body or to have his own wife, however your translation says, in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen, the heathen, Who do not know God. I want to suggest to you that Paul. Making that statement. At his time in that place. Must have sounded very foolish. And ignorant. How absurd. They must have thought. How narrow minded. You see immorality. Was built into the Greek culture. It was not uncommon. In fact it was expected for every man to have at least four women in his life. There would, uh, there would be his concubine who traveled with him wherever he went. There would be the slaves, they were his, to do whatever he wanted with. Prostitution was not illegal. And of course he had a wife. That's the one that produced the heirs. She cared for the household. There was absolutely nothing wrong with a person having these, they were upstanding citizens in that community. And for Paul, to write this letter must have sounded absurd to the community in Thessalonica. They had never heard something like this in their life. It was foolishness to them. Now, I know what some of you maybe are thinking. Pastor Kilgore, tonight you're in the wrong tent. You see, earlier today, Leslie and I... We had fun. We walked around the campground, met some folks, and went up to the kindergarten and primary and junior. And Then we came down and, and sat in on worship with the youth. I know where the youth tent is. Some of you are saying to me, Pastor, that's where you need to be talking about that, not to us. To the youth. I was down there the other day. They didn't ask me to speak. But you asked me to come here, didn't you? I was struck a while back with an article from U.S. News and World Report. Secular magazine. It says this. The trouble with premarital sex. Americans don't think it's much of a problem. Maybe they should. And the author of this magazine, I, I think he was a Jewish gentleman, he is uh, one of the editors. He says this. Uh, he says uh, we are ch- we, that the author of this article challenges those who think the biggest problem regarding changing sexual morals results simply from the behavior of teenagers. He writes that it is the adults more than the teens who are responsible for the nation's high rate of abortions, out-of-wedlock births, and sexually transmitted diseases. U.S. News and World Report. There's a couple things he wrote in here that just, uh, it just blows you away. Because he asks the question, listen to this if you would. He says in 1994, just 22% of children born out of wedlock had mothers that were 18 or under. Most of them were between 20 and 35. He says this, most unmarried, that is, between that age of 20 and 25, are the ones who are contracting sexually trauma- transmitted diseases, who are having abortions. And then he asks this, when have you heard a sermon lately on living together? Huh? When have you heard that sermon? You listen to what he says. He says, in the pulpit, there has been a backing away from moralizing about sex before marriage. The answer may seem obvious to Americans that we have given up the notion that appropriate premarital state is that of chastity. Now, there's this newspaper rebuking the church. He said, I grew up and I think I used to hear people talking about these things in church. He said, I don't hear them anymore. He went on to say, and he makes an interesting quote. Some of you that are my age, that were raised in the 60s, you'll relate to this. This idea where he says, many ultimately prove to be a little like this idea of premarital sex and that there's nothing wrong with it. He says, it proves to be a little bit like smoking dope in the 60s. In retrospect, maybe it wasn't a good idea after all. Huh? Huh? interesting. At least this person is saying that something needs to be said again about how we live our lives. Paul is saying that there is good news here for Christians. And I want you to see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There is good news here. And I put a bandage out here for a reason. When I was a teenager and in academy in the 60s, late 60s, the Vietnam War was going on. We had to do uh, medical cadet trainings. Maybe some of you remember MCCs. I, uh, I never had to go. I was thankful that I did not have to go overseas. But I still remember junior and senior year wearing those uniforms, getting your hair cut, marching, doing bivouacs and all of that. Now, that part was fun. And they'd take us out on these campouts and things and... We had to salute and march and learn first aid because many in our classes were going to Vietnam. And it was at these bivouacs that they would show us movies that they didn't show on campus. They were real-life battlefield scenarios of people who had been wounded. And they were really gory. This was real life. And I think they were probably from the Korean War or the Second World War, they'd made these movies and I... And they would show them to us. And I remember this one. They would bring this person in. It's in a tent out on the battlefield. And they bring this person in. And he's laying there. And every time he breathed, there would be this blood shooting straight to the sky. Just like Old Faithful. It was called a suckling chest wound. And then the caption would come across the picture. What would you do? We had several options. Throw up. Run. None of those were the options. The option was stop the bleeding. And they taught us how with bandages to stop the bleeding. And they said this. You are needed where you are. You can make a difference. You can save a life. I believe that Paul deals with this topic because he needs Adventists, people who believe Jesus is coming again, to know that they can make a difference where they live. It may look desperate and hopeless and frightening. But I want you to see from the Word of God that Paul has something to say to these folks who are living just before Jesus comes, who believe that that's going to happen soon, just like us that we can make a difference in this world, especially on this topic. Would you open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? I want you to see what Paul has to say. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, says this, Finally, brothers, we instruct you about how to live in order to please God. That word, in order to please God, is the basics of ethics. Ethics. You see, God is the authority in the Christian's life, isn't He? I teach a class in basic Christian ethics. My students look at philosophical ethics. The authority in philosophical ethics is man. Man is the measure of all things. And by observation and reason and logic, man determines what the rules are. When I first moved to Texas 22 years ago, it was 55 miles an hour. Everywhere you drive. Do you remember? The, it was that here, wasn't it? Now, some places out up here, you probably didn't have speed limits. But it was, it was 55 miles an hour everywhere. And now I can drive 65. I can get on the Oklahoma Cherokee Nation, turn at 75. Why? What changed? Observation. Reason. Logic. At least in Oklahoma, they determined there's nobody up there. You can go as fast as you want to. But they're the ones making the laws. Now watch. Expectations is that I will obey. And there's a reason. And that's the results. And it's an ethical term. It's called the good life. You see, man, by observation, reason, and logic, provides rules that helps protect for all of us the good life. Now you say, what's that? I say, I don't know, where do you live? Maybe it's three cows, two donkeys, and two wives. I don't know. The good life, different cultures define it different ways, don't they? But the purpose of philosophical ethics and to be obedient to those authorities is to protect the good. Now, if if you don't observe, we will lock you up because you threaten the good life. But there's another branch to ethics. It's called religious ethics. And the authority in religious ethics is myths and legends and traditions. My students are surprised when we look at Hinduism, we look at the sacredness of the cow, that people that need food won't touch a cow. would never do that. And for good reason. For the same reason that you treat your grandparents the way you do. They believe in reincarnation. This could be a... Fa- now, it may not make any sense to you. It makes sense to them. And that's why they treat this animal the way they do. Because of their sacred writings and myths and legends. They are obedient. And the results: Afterlife. That if I am obedient, and some of those that flew those planes into the Twin Towers... And into the Pentagon and crashed in Pennsylvania. They found luggage in that group that crashed in Pennsylvania. They found some prayers and what the hope and the promise of the afterlife would be if they carried out this mission. And they were obedient in hopes of gaining an afterlife. That's religious ethics. But Christian ethics is a whole new category. In Christian ethics, the authority is the revelation of Jesus Christ in Scripture. That's the authority of Christian ethics. Is the revelation of Jesus Christ in Scripture. And the expectations? Faith and obedience. Just like the other two. But would you watch this? The Christian does not live his life hoping to gain eternal life. If I read the Bible correctly, if you have the Son, you have what? You have life. That the Christian has been given eternal life, it is a gift. I live my life the way I live it, in response to grace. Paul says, the love of Christ constrains me. And I want to suggest that the love of Christ will always constrain you more than legalism. When you love someone. And that's what Paul knew. That for the Christian, we live our lives in a way that's pleasing to God. Not because I'm trying to obtain heaven. That's paganism. That's throwing babies into the the Nile. That's throwing young women into a volcano to try to appease the angry God. That's not who I serve. Jesus said, and some believe it's the most radical statement Jesus ever said, Our Father which are in heaven. I mean, the pagans believed the gods are in heaven, but they didn't think they liked them, you know? They liked to torment them. These gods liked to tease them. There was gods like nemesis. He'd knock the, the, the wheel off your cart, got a real kick out of those kind of things. And you were constantly living, I hear people today, bad karma. You ever hear all this kind of stuff? You know, the gods are watching... The one in heaven is my Father. <laughs> Aren't you glad you know that? That's what Jesus taught us to say. Now, don't misunderstand that. There are some times my Father had to whip me. Huh? They He said He loved me. I don't know. I didn't believe it at the time. But, uh, you know. <laughs> but now you realize. And Jesus says, those I love I have to chase. Doesn't He? But it's your Father in heaven. Paul says that we ought to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to God. Would you listen to me? Seventh-day Adventist Christians live their lives differently than the rest of the world. Do you believe that? That's what Paul is expecting here. That we ought to live our lives in order to please God. And I love what he does here. You know, sometimes in sermons like this, we just beat each other up. I just point that bony finger at you. You know, that type Would you notice know, what he says? In order to please God, as in fact, you are living. And now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do what? More and more. I want you to listen real carefully to me. In this topic of sexual immorality, Paul is saying that there are those in the church Who are living faithful because they love Jesus Christ in a perverse and crooked world. You don't know it. You don't hear much from them. They don't complain, but they're living faithful to Jesus Christ. And I love what Paul says God knows that. Do more and more of it. Amen? There are people in our churches who've been abandoned. There are people in our churches that have decided to raise their children rather than remarry and have made choices that place them in a situation where they have to sacrifice some things. And I don't think we appreciate that enough. That there are people that live for Jesus every day in very difficult times. Even in our churches today. Do you believe that? And Paul recognizes that. He's, some of you are doing it. Do it more and more. The reason why? Little eyes are watching you. And I'm the oldest of five. I don't know how many of you were blessed with that or not, being the oldest, you know. And Growing up, I heard that more than once. Little eyes, you know what that means. Whatever you do, somebody else is watching, right? You give them permission. And those that are living faithful to Jesus, he's saying, do that more and more. Because there's little eyes that are watching. You're listening church. In your church. There are people there wondering. How do I live a chaste Christian life. In the situation I'm in. And then they meet some here. And some in your church. That are living for Jesus where they live. It's one of the greatest demonstrations. That we need to see in this world today. Are people who love Jesus. And are living differently than the standards of this world. Do you believe that? That's what he's saying about these habits. And I want you to notice now. What it looks like when we do that. Look in verse 3. It is God's will. And I have students come to my office all the time. And they say, Pastor Kilgore, how can I know God's will for my life? And I tell them, you know, I, I don't know all the details. But there's something I do know. I know something about God's will in your life. And I'll tell it to you today for sure. Would you look in verse 3? It is God's will that you should be what? Sanctified. You know what that word sanctified means? Set apart. Set apart. All of you set apart. Not just a part of... I get a little nervous. I know we mean well. We talk about nine pennies for me and one for Jesus. Huh? Six days for me and one for Jesus. You know what I'm saying? I want to suggest to you that in the Bible, there are only two groups of people. There are those who are in Christ and those who are in the world. It's not male, it's not female, it's not Jew, it's not Greek. There's only two groups of people. Those that are in Christ and those that are in the world. And there's this little preface in a lot of the handbooks of our educational institutions that I've never liked. You know, that says that we are created in the image of God in the in the physical and the mental and emotional and social. You remember that little paragraph? You've seen it before. And then they throw spiritual in there. And I don't believe it. I don't think spiritual is just a part of our life. I'm not an artist, but I'm going to paint a picture for you right now. Follow me. What's this? Watch, watch, watch. Ah, man, I am better with no board than, you know, you, you saw it. I want to suggest to you that in the Christian life, the physical, the emotional, the intellectual, the social, it's all under an umbrella labeled spiritual or not spiritual. And it affects every aspect of your life. Do you believe that? That if I am a Christian, it affects every, not just a part On a university campus, I have the privilege of probably doing somewhere between 8 to 10 weddings a year. Simply because I'm around kids that are graduating and wanting to get married. And I always do premarital counseling. But also, as a pastor, don't get to choose uh, what I want to deal with. I have couples that come into my office on our campus who are getting divorced. That's not the counseling I like to do. But uh, you know it's it's expected, and you do that. And it's been interesting because more and more in the past decade, this idea of unfaithfulness, which before was very cut and dried, has moved into different areas. You can't pick up a professional journal today that doesn't have something to say about pornography. It's two clicks away on any computer. You're not sneaking off to some seedy little bookstore or drive in somewhere hoping no one can see you. It's at your office. It's it's on your iPhone, right? It is two clicks away. And you're the one that has to make that decision in your heart that you're going to be faithful to Jesus. You know that? And it's your decision. Nobody else may know or see. But it's your decision. And I want to suggest to you that nobody gets up in the morning and says, I think I'll go rob a store today. No. That's something that's been going on in here a long time, right? You've been casing out the joint mentally. Nobody gets up and says, I think I'm going to kill that guy today. (laughs) No. There's something been going on. And neither does someone get up one morning and decide to commit adultery. There's a process going on in the life. Paul wants to deal with that process. In the life of Christians in Thessalonica, who have accepted Christ as their Savior and are being closed in by the world and its standards. How do Christians live differently? Paul says, here's God's will. God's will for your life. Is that you should avoid sexual immorality. I tell my young people. There's a lot of things about God's will I don't know about your life. But I know this. That God promised if you'll do things His way. The two shall become one flesh. Amen. You don't do it God's way. And I have no promise of what's going to happen in your life. It's one of the most important decisions you make in your life. Would you notice what God promises? Look at the contrast now. He says that each of you should learn how to take his own wife or control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. When I talk to academy kids, (laughs) you know, they're interested in dating and all that kind of stuff. And I'll ask them sometimes, how far is too far? And I asked him, I said, here at the, if I'm at an academy, how about here at the academy? Oh, we can't even look at each other. You know how they they talk about it. we got to walk on different sidewalks, you know, and all this kind of, okay, okay. What about when you go home? How about with your parents? Well, I get all kinds of stories of what they tell me. Then I asked him this question. What about you? When nobody else is around, it's just you. How far is too far? And what I want young people to know and what I believe about this topic is that God always wants us to go farther than we want to go. It's quiet in here tonight. I expect that. It's one of those topics that we have to talk about. It's in Scripture. It's in this book about Adventists. It's an issue that exists in this world. Listen to me. God always wants us to go farther than we want to go. You see, we could be satisfied with lust. God wants us to know love. We could be satisfied with just using. God wants us to honor. That's what the text said. We could become satisfied with just possessing. God says to cherish. We could become satisfied with controlling. God says respect. You see, that's what God wants to see in the church today. For those that are looking in, sees people who believe that Jesus is coming soon, they're living differently. And living differently in the most intimate relationships of their life. Our children need to see that. Do you know that the statistics for divorce are going down in the United States? They have been. And that's exactly right. The reason they're going down is that fewer people are getting married. Cohabitation, off the charts. I can't blame some of these kids. Some of the things they tell me they've been through, they say, Pastor, I don't want that in my life. I want to be a person who can tell them that God has a plan for that. Do you believe that? And that they can see that lived out in the body of Christ. That's why I'm not down in the youth tent tonight. I'm here. Because it's important. This topic always makes me a little nervous. But I want you to see somebody in the Bible. Who knew better. And made the wrong consequence. The wrong decision. And the consequences he paid. The devil... You see, he, he takes pleasure and denies consequences, doesn't he? And that's the problem. We don't see the... Con- I want you to see something tonight for a few moments. I need you... If you don't have a Bible, would you look on somebody that does? I want you to take a little walk with me for just a few moments through Scripture. I want you to see somebody you know. And what I want you to look at is not just the act, but the consequence of the act. Because there may be somebody here tonight I don't know. There are those here who are living for Jesus more and more. And I encourage you to do that. But there may be somebody here this evening, somebody back in your church. I want to encourage you to get these tapes for in the mornings, for the meetings this evening. Play them for camp meeting, for prayer meeting. Have your own camp meeting when you get home. Amen? Bring your Bibles. Look at them. Because there may be somebody in your church right now contemplating making a mistake that's going to affect them the rest of their lives. And I want you to see something in Scripture tonight. And I am so thankful That God speaks to us honestly. Aren't you? I really am. I remember when I was diagnosed with cancer. (laughs) You know, the surgeon, when he first felt his lump under my arm, he said, that's a fatty tumor. I take a hundred of those out a year. day before Thanksgiving, I was out of school. He said, we can do that that day. I woke up and he's standing over the gurney. That's not a good sign. And he says to me, Bill, I I I was wrong. It's not a fatty tumor. You got cancer. I, I won't know until I get the reports back. But, And so uh, I went back to teaching right after Thanksgiving break. And two days later, it was on a Tuesday, I'm teaching a class. Mike Tucker is in the class. Uh, he lives in that area. Some of you may know him from uh, Faith for Today. But Mike was there helping in the ethics class, knock on the door. And someone said, Bill, I think you better take this call. And I went into the office and took the call. And It was from one of my good friends who's my family doctor. And he said to me, Bill, he said, I couldn't wait till the surgeon saw the results. I had to peek. And he said, I want to tell you something. It's not good. And he said, the reason I'm telling you that is that I need you to know you've got to do something about this. Now, I've thought of my friend and how he must have thought, I can't tell Bill this. This is going to ruin his day, right? You don't want, but I want to tell you because he was my friend, he spoke the truth to me. Are you listening? Because he knew how serious it was. He wanted me to know how serious it was. And I took him serious. Paul wants us to know, and scripture wants us to know how important this sacred relationship is in our homes and in our churches. And that's why it's in this book, first book in the New Testament. As soon as Paul deals with this idea of what happened and how he had to leave Thessalonica, the very first words are, Therefore. And he moves into the issue that is common and prevalent and has to be dealt with. And we need to do the same tonight. I want you to notice with me, if you would, turn back to Second Samuel chapter uh, 16. Uh, well... Let's do this, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Our time's going to catch up with us. We need to go quickly. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Up until this time, everything that David had done, God had blessed, and he had uh, gained a reputation for being a man after God's own heart. But he certainly wasn't that in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I'll go quickly here. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time with what he did, but I want you to notice this. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. And in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with his king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And verse 2. And one evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. And from there, he saw a woman bathing. Now, I want to stop for a second. The footnotes in my Bible say that this probably happened about 10 years after David had been ruling in Jerusalem. Remember, David was 30 years old when he became king and he ruled for 40 years. David was probably 48 to 50 years old when this happened. This is not a kid. This is a person who faced Goliath, who heard the people sing, Saul slayed his thousands and David his what? 10,000. This was a man that knew victory. And here he was in a place he shouldn't be. And I want you to tell, I want you to know something. I don't care how old you are. But there's places we should not be. Do you believe that? And I'm not just talking physical places. I'm talking internet places as well. Places we should not be. We're setting ourselves up for failure. But what I want you to know, and I'm not going to go into the whole story here. But I want you to notice this. Come down with me if you would. Look what he says. Uh, This woman that he saw, she was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba? Now, watch. The daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, in your Bible, if you would turn with me to uh, 2 Samuel 23 for just a moment. 2 Samuel 23. I want you to see something. 2 Samuel 23 is an interesting chapter in the Bible. Because this chapter has a list of 33 men who are the most valiant men in Israel. These are the men that would die for David. It's a special unit, selected bodyguards for David. Would you notice with me, chapter uh, 23, 2 Samuel 23. And look, if you would, in the last part of verse 34. And Elam, son of Ahithophel the Gilonite. Do you see Elam there? That Elam, who was Bathsheba's father, was one of David's hand-picked, selected guards who were chosen to protect him, would lay down his life for him. And do you notice that his father was Ahithophel? Do you know who Ahithophel was? David's Most trusted advisor. It's the one Absalom brought to him after David fled the city. And and Ahithophel is the one who told him, Go after this man and don't stop till you kill him. Ahithophel is also the one who told Absalom, Pitch a tent on your dad's roof and sleep with his concubine. Because Nathan had told David, What you did in secret will be done broad daylight. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. You know who Ahithophel was? Bathsheba's grandfather. Watch this. This little girl, this lady, was the granddaughter of David's most trusted advisor. This girl, this lady, was the daughter of one of his trusted soldiers. And you also know this in verse 23. Look at the very last verse. And Uriah the Hittite is on that list. Can you imagine how proud Elam must have been when his daughter decides to marry one of the men in the unit? How proud that must have made him feel to know that her daughter is marrying this man of integrity. By the way, had more integrity than David, didn't he? I want you to see something. That this act that David did, that sometimes we gloss over This was his trusted advisor's advisor's granddaughter. One of his most powerful soldier's daughter. And the wife of another one of the most trusted advisors. What we do with our lives affect other people. Do you believe that? I don't care how isolated and you may not think it has an effect. And very quickly, I want to show you an effect. Just very quickly in David's life. And we are going to go quickly here. You'll know that Bathsheba got pregnant. What happened to that baby? It died. And you'll know that uh, David had another son, Ammon, who became infatuated with his stepsister, Tamar, who was Absalom's sister. You remember what he did? He did. He raped her. And you know what's incredible about that? The Bible says that David got angry, but it doesn't say that he did anything else. What's David going to say to him? Yeah. Dad, you're going to talk to me about what? And so, whenever David didn't deal with it, who dealt with it? Absalom. And what did Absalom do? Killed his son. So, David's lost two sons the one at birth, and now Ammon. And what's the story of Absalom? Same type thing. You remember? And you know what's interesting? Absalom gets banished. But David misses him so much and brings him back. And you read in the story, it says, David fell on his neck and kissed him, but never said a thing about repentance and confession and sorrow for sin. What's he going to say? Do you see the consequences in this man's life? Brought him back! And when he brought Absalom back, that snake began working. You remember? Standing at the gate. You remember what happened? And before it's all over... Absalom loses his life. But it's not over yet. Let me share with you one other passage in 1 Kings. We're talking about consequences of the sin. We need to move quickly here. But I want you to see that that we need to thank God for what he wants to deliver us from. And I want us to think quickly and be careful with our actions and what we do. Things that we think do not affect other people, they do. They do. People see them, First Kings, this is it's an interesting part, First Kings chapter 1, David is an, is an old man here, and in 1 Kings chapter 1, it's Chuck Swindoll, who's written a book entitled Facing Your Giants, and in that book, he says that this story is one of the saddest passages of all of scripture, because when David's an old man, what do they do? They go out and find a girl named Abassai. You see, you see here? This young girl to keep David warm. You know what Chuck Swindoll says? Where are all the women in David's life? Where are all those people in his life? He said it's one of the saddest commentaries. In his last days when he's dying, where are the people who love him and should be the closest to him? And the saddest thing of this story is that David has another son, Adonijah. you know that? And in this story, Adonijah decides to make himself king. And it's Bathsheba that goes to David and says, Wait a minute, I thought Solomon was going to be king. And David finds out what Abijah has done. And do you know that before this story is over, Solomon has to kill Abijah. Five sons. It's interesting in 1 Kings. It says about Abijah that he was very handsome. That he was very gifted. But his dad never said anything to him. There are consequences to our actions. Was David forgiven? I believe he was. Did he love God? I think he did. Someone once told me who'd been through a divorce. And a messy one. That God doesn't force us to love his son and neither will God force your son to love you if you've mistreated his mother there are consequences to our actions this evening I'm not trying to be discouraged discouraging as I go through this book I want you to see that there there are positive things God wants to do in our lives those that have been living faithful to him do it more and more and more Those who maybe have been thinking things about how your life could be different, be careful. There are consequences to our actions. And tonight, I'm so thankful for the Word of God, aren't you? That God wants us to live lives that are sanctified, set apart to Him. There's some other things I was going to share, but time's gone. But I want you to know this. I want you to know this evening that, that God is still walking and trying to reach us where we live for Him. And if I can find this other sheet, I hate this when this happens. I bring too much stuff up. You ever done that? Have you ever done it in front of a hundred people? Uh, you know, why am I? Here it is. Here it is. The reason I bring this up is I want to encourage you to get these tapes. To go home with your church. To have a Bible study session that you go through these morning meetings and these others. And the evening meetings as well. Talk about what it means to be an Adventist. Show them this little time capsule. Do the same thing. There's no copyright on the gospel. But let the Holy Spirit speak to people's hearts. We need to speak. We need to hear God's voice speaking on this topic. Do you believe that? Leslie and I were up uh, yesterday afternoon for just a few moments overlooking Emerald Bay. You know, what a beautiful setting. And there's a couple there, an older couple, older than us. Not old, but older than us. Gentleman was 73 and he ran 32 marathons. Just finished one in Hawaii just recently. They were there taking a little vacation. Always took a vacation after a marathon. 73 years old, had run 32 marathons. He said, In the last marathon, there were only three people in it older than him. I said, How'd you do? He said, I came in third place in my cab. Ha 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 ha. We said, you can brag about that, but his wife said, uh, he usually does a lot better than that. But she said, we were up all night. You see, she asked us what we were doing here, and we said, we're we're here for a camp meeting. And I think all of a sudden she realized that we had spiritual values in common. And she said, uh, he was up the night before. She said, we have a daughter going through a horrible divorce. Son-in-law who'd been having an affair for three years with his secretary and she just found out and she wanted to make things right and he is just making things a living hell for them. Parents stay up at night when that happens, don't they? You stay up. We don't even know these people's names. We just met them. But I want to suggest how the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. This is a topic that many people are struggling with need to know that there can be healing and hope even when people have made very stupid mistakes. I found this in the Adventist Review. Let me just share it with you. It's a poem, and I'll close with this. And I think that in some of our churches, maybe even here tonight, there's some people that are like this. And I want you to know that God has a plan. To redeem your life. Listen to what it says. On the burning sand, I walked towards the cool oasis. I had a map. So when God came by and offered me his, I laughed and I said, I don't need it. But he wouldn't stop bothering me. Every time I looked around, he was following. When I stopped along some rocks to look for some water, once he caught up. Holding out a canteen of water, he said, if you drink this, you'll never thirst again. Knowing this was unreasonable, I said, "Over the hills of spring, but the water I found was foul. Around it were human bones bleaching in the sun. Exhausted, I fell beside the pool, defiant, trying to rest. I couldn't. When God caught up, he says, "I "If you want to have shelter, I have a tent. I don't need it." I lied. He ignored my lying, he said nothing. Suddenly, leaping to my feet, I raced across the sand, my eyes fixed. I threw away my map. There it was, the oasis. Tired, bleeding, but triumphant. I looked over my shoulder. He was running after me. He ran with a pack on his back. Water, medicine, bandages. I scorned them. Leave me alone, God. He slowed down and then he stopped. Far in the distance, the oasis. It was shining in the sun. I'd show him. I stumbled on a long, long time before I knew the oasis was a mirage. All around the night turned black. I was thirsty, bleeding, and tired. The desert was cold. I stopped and sat down on a rock, my head in my hand. I was lost, but I heard a sound behind me. And when I looked around, there was God. Tonight, I just want you to know there's a sound behind you. Some of you maybe in here have been running, running from some things we've been talking. about. I want you to know he's there and he's got everything he needs, the bandages to heal the broken hearted wounds. Do you believe that tonight? I'd like to ask you to stand with me and let's pray. And afterwards, we've been having some time of prayer here after every meeting. It's been wonderful to turn this tent into a house of prayer. And we'll do the same thing this evening. And if tonight there's some things you'd like to pray about, maybe one thing we find all the time, our children living with other people not married, that's, that's something that's heavy on probably several of your hearts. That happens. Don't give up. God has you there for a reason. You have the bandage. God knows how to heal hearts. He wants you to stop the bleeding. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you tonight for the word of God. Lord, it speaks to where we live. When we are happy and joyful, there's so many passages in the Bible we can go to. But there are also these passages that talk about the dark side of life sometimes and the pressures we face from the culture we live in. But I am so thankful tonight that you have promised to give us power to live lives that are pleasing to you. How much this world needs to see that. And Lord, if there's people here that are hurting, they're hurting because they're living the way they should be living. And it's hard in this world. Continue to give them strength to live that way more and more. May they know tonight you know that and you love them. Maybe even somebody here tonight contemplating making a decision. They may think it's for the best, but could turn out to be disastrous. Not just for them, but for their families. Tonight, Lord, I don't believe in luck and chance. I believe every person is here because you brought them here. Speak to that heart. And there may even be some here that have already made those decisions and have suffered the consequences. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you still are there. Tonight, we want to be a sound that you can turn and there you are with what's needed to begin to bring healing to a life. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to where we live and giving us the courage to live for you where we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.